this yeah. is hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Imagine if this winter, a previously unknown cause of death, was to suddenly emerge, spreading like wildfire across the globe, killing untold numbers of people as the world scrambles for a cure. Governments worldwide respond with much-needed public assistance to help people survive the crisis as publicly funded research institutions work diligently to come up with a vaccine. Sure, there are the denialists insisting the new cause of death is exaggerated. We should just go on about our business, go on with our daily lives, as if nothing is happening. There's nothing to see here. But as the deaths pile up, that seems to be an increasingly untenable position to take. Miraculously, however, public research institutions do develop a vaccine, and relatively quickly. And while it does not completely protect the public from the new cause of death, it does make the disease far more survivable, uh, turning what would have been deadly into something akin to a bad flu, although potentially with long-term consequences, and still a chance of death. Now imagine that while 125,000 are still dying every year from the new cause of death, that's over 10,000 people dead a month, and that's only in the United States alone, the U.S. government decides that the new cause of death is no more. It's gone. It's disappeared. That information about the new cause of death will no longer be shared by healthcare institutions and professionals that the public will no longer be informed about any potential surge in deaths, that for all intents and purposes, moving forward, we will be completely left in the dark about the new cause of death and just how deadly it is. Well, you don't have to have an imagination to dream up that nightmare because that's exactly what we went through with the Trump administration and what we are going through right now with the Biden administration and what we will be going through now that they've declared the pandemic over. In a few minutes, we will figure out why there's an insistence that it's over when it's not and what that means for all of us when we speak with economist Matt Mazuski, who wrote the Commonwealth magazine article, The Pandemic Isn't Over, Why Are Both Parties Pretending That COVID Is Behind Us? You can find that article at commonwellmagazine.org. That's commonwellmagazine.org. Or you can follow them on Twitter. At Commonwealth Mag. Matt is a contributing writer at and book critic at Commonwealth. He is a former research analyst in the Research and Statistics Group at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Matt teaches courses on economics and labor studies for high school students at Columbia University's pre college programs, as well as being an economics tutor. He's an independent researcher working on several projects related to labor economics, including the measurement of union membership over time at a fine. Uh, geographic level, the impacts of collective bargaining on retirement outcomes, and the dynamics of monopsony power in the labor markets. Find out more about Matt at mattmazuski.com. Follow Matt on Twitter at mattmazuski. Find out what monopsony means by searching it at dictionary.com. Producing is Kat Jarvin, and I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host chuck Burtz. cat it's been a few weeks during that time you got covid 
Uh, how are you feeling now? Uh, do you think you have any long-term effects from it? You know, it's hard to say. I'm definitely feeling better, but I did feel like I was hit by a truck for did you? Like five days there. Yeah. So ha were you all up to date on your vaccines and all that? Yeah, totally up to date. And I even I had COVID about a year ago as well. So no kidding. I just got pretty unlucky there. But yeah, I'm feeling pretty, pretty much, uh, pretty good now. When you uh, from last year, did you feel like you had any effects that were lingering beforehand? No, no, not really, nothing from last year. But this time, I'm still, yeah, it's still waiting to see how I feel in about a week. I'm still a little tired, but. Man, I hope you don't have that long haul COVID. <laughs> I know, me too. The friends of mine who have that really say it sucks like crazy. So, the best of luck to you. How are you doing otherwise? How was your weekend? Were you able to enjoy it, even though you were getting over being sick? A little bit, yeah. I had I had a friend come into town, and we actually went to see a magic show at the Chicago Magic Lounge. Oh, you did? <laughs> a friend of mine used to work there. He really liked working there. How was that place? It's really, really fun. I recommend it to anybody who likes magic or anyone who doesn't. It was, It's a blast. That's like just south of Hopleaf on Clark Street, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That used to be a laundromat, which had the best name of any laundromat ever, the Queen's Basket. <laughs> I don't know why it was called that, but I <laughs> loved it. So, uh, Will Ippen was going to be in here shadowing Kate, but Kate, or Kat, if I do that one more time, every time I do that, and I have to give Kat $10. Uh, so, uh, Will Ippen was going to be in here shadowing Kat, but instead Kat is doing the show all by herself, solo producing for the very first time. So, thank you very much for being in here, Kat. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be back. So, like I was saying, uh, this is the first time that Kat is pr uh, doing a show all by herself. Will got Kat all trained up, and then health issues kept her from doing the show for a few weeks. So, she starts producing by herself this week. This is her first one. And then she's going to produce again next Monday on June 19th, and one more time on Monday, June 26th which will be our final, final show before I miss two weeks due to my upcoming operation and the suggested recovery time from a surgery that will hopefully be the last in my 16-month medical nightmare that nearly killed me. All of which means we return the week after the 4th of July week, and during those two weeks we are not here, we will be all red, white, and blue, and we will be playing the most patriotic interviews we have ever done here on This Is Hell. So even while we are out, keep tuning into This Is Hell so you can proudly scream at the top of your lungs, USA, USA, while blowing stuff up, terrorizing cats and dogs everywhere. Spoiler alert, the conversations that we will be playing while we are out in reality are not patriotic at all. In fact, some may consider them downright un-American, spewing straight-up communist doggerel. That said, after hearing the discussions we will be sharing the week before and during the 4th of July, you may still want to blow stuff up. But more important than any of that, Kat, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... What disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? What disease, disorder, or syndrome will I come down with next? And we even have a definition at the Facebook page, at the Patreon page, of exactly what the difference is between 
disease disorder and syndrome. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner of the question from hell. Following a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin, if your answer is our favorite, you will get your choice of This Is Hell stuff that is now available at thisishell.com when clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Cat has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is chlorophyll water, although there's no scientific evidence to suggest it works. Glam.com posted an article last week by Lily Rain with the headline, is chlorophyll water a helpful hangover cure? A registered dietitian weighs in. Chlorophyll water is actually trademarked and claims to be, quote, a purified mountain spring mineral water enhanced with the addition of liquid chlorophyll and essential vitamins, end quote. Rain White writes, chlorophyll water has gone viral on social media as a remedy for hangovers because these benefits can be helpful in healing after alcohol consumption though this has not been proven through significant scientific research. Uh, Trista Best, a registered dietitian at Balance One Supplements, environmental health scientist and adjunct nutrition, is quoted saying, It is claimed that chlorophyll helps to eliminate toxins from the body and supports liver function. Antioxidants found in chlorophyll provided by the plant compounds work in the body to remove and reduce toxins and, ref and free radical damage. Rain adds, unfortunately, because the claims of chlorophyll water curing hangovers cannot be thoroughly backed up by scientific research, you may want to have other remedies in your back pocket should you need them. Best tells Glam that, quote, other strategies such as proper hydration and rest are typically more effective in alleviating hangover symptoms. The writer Lily Rain ends with, if you are feeling experimental though, chlorophyll water can be a great option to try. That makes this week's hangover cure chlorophyll water if you are feeling experimental. Although there is no scientific evidence, it works. Wow, that totally sounds like a completely made up hangover cure. As soon as I saw that chlorophyll <laughs> water had been at a registered trademark, I knew that is something that probably doesn't have any scientific evidence to back it up. So I got a message via Facebook from the amazing artist Lisa Barcy, who is the curator of This Is Art, the opening that happens during the This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party, which also features live music, good food, and a raffle. And most importantly, you, listeners of This Is Hell. It all happens at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. That's 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Happening, or beginning at around 3 in the afternoon on Saturday, July 22nd. Yep, less than a month after having what will hopefully be my final surgery and my near 16-month death experience, I will be partying with you. So Lisa sent an update on the upcoming show. She writes, Hi Chuck, I've got a great lineup of artists for the July show already, but if there's any listeners sending in work, just let me know. It's going to be a packed show. So consider this the final call for artists. If you are an artist or know one or love the work of an artist that you think will be a perfect match for the This Is Art show that opens at the party, email me with a sample of the artist's work or a link to their art at chuckatthisishell.com. We are also still looking for musicians to perform. 
If you would like to recommend a musical act to perform during the party, send a sample of their music. Keep in mind, we take no commission for any art sold at the show, and we've been told we pay musicians far too much. Finally, if you have what you think would make a great raffle prize or would like to suggest an artist or a musical uh, act to be part of the Thursday, uh, This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, email us your ideas or your raffle prize ideas to chuck at thisishell.com. And we got a message on Patreon with a possible raffle prize. Patreon patron Alex W. writes, Are you still taking donations to the fundraiser? I do not have anything of the widget variety to donate, but I have an idea that I could offer vacation accommodations in my home in Seattle. The auction winners, actually raffle winners, would get a stay in my finished and partially furnished basement that has previously been occupied by five European volunteers that traveled to Seattle to help Shama Sawant defeat the 2021 recall campaign. Lodging and rental cars are very expensive here in the summer, and my centrally located place would allow someone to visit without those expenses. I have some ideas of additional perks I could include. So we replied to Alex saying, Hell yes, we'd love to offer a free place to stay in Seattle as a prize in the raffle during the upcoming This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show happening again on Saturday, July 22nd in the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. We are still looking, uh, working out the details with Alex, but so far we have a whole bunch of great raffle gifts, raffle prizes donated to the show, including the classic 1984 Avalon Hill board game, Class Struggle, donated for the raffle, as well as the Tessa Collective card game, Space Cats Fight Fascism. We also have a subscription to Detroit-based Kennedy Prince, which will be sending a print to your home every month, uh, to the home of the prize winner, I should say. And we'll also be raffling off framed Kennedy Prince. There will also be This Is Hell merchandise, including a Seattle artist who is sending a handmade shot glass, a handmade This Is Hell shot glass. And maybe, just maybe, We'll be giving away a free place to stay in Seattle. Again, that's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show. This is Art, happening on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning around 3 in the afternoon at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Coming up, the pandemic is far from being over. Cat has some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also, Dr. Sebastian Vupper and the past inside the present returns when Sebastian, a historian by trade, gives us the historical context of the past that we need to have a better understanding of the present. Kat, what is Sebastian talking about today? Today, Seb explores the history of the Hawaiian Islands after quote-unquote discovery and the rise and struggles of the Hawaiian Kingdom. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell, and by all indications, it appeared that our future would be one where the U.S. government would play a more active role in the health and welfare of its citizenry as the COVID-19 outbreak leading to the pandemic proved that the government, and only the government, can provide the public with what it needs to survive during a time of crisis. Market solutions were making everyone more vulnerable to the crisis. But without a profit incentive, the state was able to provide the public with health care, waiving debt payments, and giving everyone the resources they needed to feed, house, and clothe themselves and their families while a deadly virus was raging. 
Yes, the public sector and not the private saved us from the worst effects during the earliest years of the pandemic. No matter what both political parties and the media want you to believe, including nonsense like the pandemic is over. Here to tell us why it isn't and why there's a bipartisan and establishment media support for claiming it is economist. Matt Mazuski wrote the Commonwealth Magazine article, The Pandemic Isn't Over. Why are both parties pretending that COVID is behind us? Welcome to This Is Hell, Matt. Well, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for being on the show. This is a really fascinating article because it's something that was bugging me when the uh, pandemic, when the Biden administration announced that the pandemic was essentially over, that the emergency, the national emergency was over. I was very surprised at the lack of debate about it. I was very surprised at the lack of skepticism and doubt about the pandemic being over. Why? What do you think led to that lack of doubt? Why? Why that lack of skepticism? Why that lack of criticism of the Biden administration for saying that the pandemic is over, while, as you point out, 125,000 people will likely die this year in the United States from COVID? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a very multifactorial problem. I don't think there's any one thing that you can point to as explaining the entire situation, but there are a few. Uh, major factors that I would point to. And I think one is is the sense that the sense on the part of many elected officials and politicians that uh, the public is just done with COVID. They're just uh, done caring about the problem and they, it's something they don't want to hear about anymore. And so as a result, if you're a politician that's out there still talking about it, you know, you're you're out of step with the voters. That's not that's not what they want to hear about right now. Um, but I think there's some circularity to this because, you know, why is it that people by and large don't really care about the problem anymore? Uh, and as you pointed to in your introduction, you know, there's some subset of people that never really cared about the problem. Even when the pandemic began in 2020, there were always some people that thought it wasn't a big deal or not something to be worried about. Um, but I think, you know, for people who are just trying to do the best they can and and get as much information as they can and and order their lives accordingly. You know, the messages that they're hearing on the news and and from public health authorities and from elected officials is that, you know, the situation is behind us. There's really nothing to be concerned about anymore. COVID is just a cold or a flu. And, um, you know, you can just go back to your life as it was in 2019. And so the idea that politicians are just responding to public opinion is is mistaken because in effect that public opinion is largely driven by the messages that are coming from media and from government sources. So that's what I was going to ask. As you said, uh, it, you know, from their perspective, they think that we're done with it. We are, we're totally done. We're tired of it. We're sick and tired of having to deal with COVID, and we just want to move on. Do you think that is an accurate depiction of what the public wants? Do you think that we just want to move on from the virus and declare that, uh, that uh, have the national emergency declared to be over? I mean, I think that people, you know, people's lives were were, and many people's lives still are disrupted in many ways by this virus. And it's something that people would love to be able to move on from. Um, but I think in, in a lot of ways, what we've seen is this um, tendency to blame not, not the virus for this disruption, but the response to the virus. And so when people talk about moving on from COVID, 
uh, you know, that discussion tends to focus on things like schools being closed and uh, stay at home orders and, um, you know, social distancing. And, and it seems like now there's, there's an increasing tendency to say that, um, you know, there was too much of an overreaction to the threat and, and we really shouldn't have responded the way that we did. And, and the problem now is, is unwinding those measures as opposed to, you know, continuing to find new ways to, to fight this ongoing threat. Well, it's arguable that we did overreact at the very beginning of the virus when we didn't know what safety precautions would be the best protocol to follow. Uh, at one time, we were being told that we should be cleaning our groceries, that we should be changing our clothes before we get in our house, that we should be outside. Well, if we do go outside, that we should be wearing latex gloves. There were certain precautions that maybe, in retrospect, that could be arguable that we went too far. What's the danger in thinking that we went too far in taking precautions at the very beginning of the outbreak when we still had no vaccine or no clue as to what the vaccine would be whatsoever? Well, I, th I think you're you're pointing to something really important, which is that our our measures, our, our response to the virus really needs to be informed by an accurate understanding of how it's transmitted. And I think you're right that at the beginning of this whole crisis, there really was not a very clear understanding of, of how the virus spreads. And so there was a lot of concern that, uh, you know, it spreads on surfaces or it spreads uh, from being coughed or sneezed on by someone. And that's where we got a lot of the concerns about, as you say, wiping down groceries, washing hands, wearing gloves, um, you know, staying six feet apart and so on. Um, but I think one of the great travesties of this situation is that as the scientific understanding of how COVID transmits has, has developed, uh, the public health authorities have really never clearly communicated that understanding to the public in an actionable way. Um, and I, I think there are reasons for that that we could, we could also get into if you want, but the important thing is to say that the, the scientific consensus at this point is really that COVID is an airborne virus. And when we say airborne, what we mean is that it spreads through the air like smoke. So it's not just a matter of being close enough to someone to literally be coughed on or sneezed on by them. But if you're if you think about it like being in a room with someone who's smoking a cigarette, you know, even if you're six feet or more away from them sitting on the other side of the room, if that room is not well ventilated or you're not running an air purifier or wearing a high quality mask, the room is going to fill with smoke and you're eventually going to breathe it in. And so that understanding that that mental picture of how to think about COVID transmission is something that public health authorities have just never really clearly educated the public about. Well, they, again, they, not only haven't they, I didn't even know about that. I thought that I think that that's a great analogy when you think about it as smoke. So let's get to the question that you were posing earlier. So why hasn't the CDC, why hasn't the government explained to the public a, a very clear cut way in which in a very clear-cut way in which the virus is transmitted. Why haven't they gone about and done that so everybody is better informed? I mean, the smoke analogy would seem to be a great way for people to understand how COVID is spread. Yeah, yeah. I think, again, this is another problem that I think is is somewhat complex, but I think really what it boils down to is the fact that uh, really addressing airborne transmission requires a collective societal response in a way that addressing transmission on surfaces or, or you know, um, through coughing or sneezing maybe doesn't. 
So if you listen to a lot of the advice that you hear, you know, from public health officials or from TV doctors about how to protect yourself from COVID to the extent that any of them still really talk about that at all, uh, it's, it's always focused on, you know, washing your hands and coughing into your elbow. And, uh, you know, maybe if you're in a crowd trying to stay at a little bit of a distance from people and, and things like that. And these are all solutions that you can put onto individuals. You know, hand washing is not something that is the government's responsibility. The government can just tell you it's your own personal responsibility. But, you know, when it comes to airborne transmission, <clears throat> it's a little bit harder to practice personal responsibility because it's very hard to avoid sharing air with people when you're in the same indoor spaces or the same public spaces. And that's where we start to realize that, you know, to really address that problem, we need things like um, government standards for indoor air quality, um, investment in an in a infrastructure for sanitizing indoor air. And those are things that would impose significant costs on, on government and on businesses. I think those costs would be far outweighed by their benefits, but um, you know, that's something that politicians don't really want to get into because it starts to it starts to lead to serious discussions about spending serious amounts of money. Uh, and so it's easier for them to stick with the solutions that are individualized and and talking about airborne spread kind of cuts against that whole desire to keep things to keep things focused on the individual the government is always very willing to come up with a market-based solution they're often very willing to come up with a militarized solution and that's a very good point that you make they're also willing to individualize the solution so the responsibility the onus is on you as the individual and it's not a collective response which is very much what our government does in this age of neoliberalism so uh, what does uh, ending this emergency mean if say a new COVID-19 variant emerges that is not as susceptible to the current vaccines? Do the, does this uh, call for the end of the uh, national declaration of an emergency for or declaration of a national emergency for COVID-19? Is that ending of that emergency making us any more vulnerable to another pandemic, maybe even making us as unprepared as we were when this virus broke out? Yeah, I think I think so. I think unfortunately we haven't really made very much progress at all in terms of preparedness. I mean, I think we often hear rhetoric from this administration about preparing for the next pandemic and I always think that we haven't really adequately dealt with this pandemic. So why should we think that we're prepared for the next one? Um but yeah, I think I think a big I talk about this a little bit in the in the article is one one implication of the end of the public health emergency is that it's a lot harder now to collect data on uh, on you know viral surveillance and case counts and hospitalizations and deaths and all, all of that. Um, and it was already becoming more difficult. I think the transition away from um, the PCR testing towards at-home testing, where results were really not recorded or reported at all, meant that it was becoming a lot harder to track the extent of, of the spread of COVID. Um, but I think now it's it's gotten a lot harder because um, there are a number of states that are just no longer really reporting any data at all. Um, the data are being reported on a lesser frequency. And so um, it's it's harder to have an accurate picture of what's happening. And I think 
that also means that it's going to be harder to um, pick up any surge that might happen going forward um, and to, to see it before it, it comes rather than, you know, once it's already really upon us. Here's how the Associated Press reported President Biden ending the national emergency response to the pandemic. They write that the U.S. national emergency to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic ended as President Joe Biden signed a bipartisan congressional resolution to bring it to a close after three years, weeks before it was set to expire alongside a separate public health emergency. The national emergency allowed the government to take sweeping steps to respond to the virus and support the country's economic health and welfare systems. Some of the emergency measures have already been successfully wound down, while others are still being phased out. The public health emergency underpins tough immigration restrictions at the U.S.-Mexico border. So by your estimation, why did the Biden administration end the national emergency early? Why do it now? Why not wait for the next few weeks? What was the point? Was this an attempt to have a victory lap for the Biden administration over the pandemic? And if so, did it work? Yeah, I, I think I think that's part of it. I think certainly the administration wants to portray itself as having conquered this problem and uh, being able to say that the emergency ended early certainly fits into that push. Um, but something else I talked about in the article a little bit is is the idea that there are just uh, there's just an aversion on the part of of many elected officials in both parties, unfortunately, uh, to the idea that the government could do a lot more than it traditionally does to provide for the welfare of the people. And so, for instance, during during the um, emergency declaration, while it was in effect, uh, we had this significant expansion of Medicaid enrollment. And, and this is kind of how I start off the article, talking about the fact that when the emergency went into effect, um, there was a pause put on um, verifying eligibility for Medicaid. So essentially, instead of every year having to reprove that you're eligible to remain on Medicaid, the the government just said, don't worry about it for the duration of the public health emergency. Anyone who was on Medicaid at the start can, can stay on Medicaid. Um, and I think there is a strong desire to portray that as an emergency measure, as something that we couldn't possibly do in normal times. Uh, so of course it has to be unwound because you really, you don't want people to get the idea that you know the government might be able to provide health insurance for them as a matter of course all the time. Um, and I think the same thing goes with, um, you know, the government paying for vaccines and treatments for COVID. And, and I mentioned this as well, that, um, you know, Biden's coronavirus coordinator, who actually just left the White House, Ashish Shah, um, he, was, he was very enthusiastic last year talking about the idea that the government was going to stop paying for vaccines and that it would be become a matter of, you know, something you would either have to pay for out of pocket or that your insurance would pay for. He was saying, you know, we really need to get the government out of the business of buying vaccines. And my question is, well, why? Why shouldn't the government just buy all vaccines? And I think I think that's really there's really an ideological aversion there to to letting people see that something like that can work indefinitely because people might get the idea that um, maybe this is a idea that we can extend to other things. You also mentioned the Limit, Save, Grow Act, a conservative wish list come 
uh, ransom note narrowly passed by the Republican House majority in late April, containing a provision that would impose work requirements on recipients of Medicaid, the public health insurance program for low-income Americans. Eligibility for coverage would be conditioned on either working, participating in job training, or performing community service for at least 80 hours a month. That's 20 hours a week, with a few exemptions based on age, disability, or having a dependent child. So in your opinion, Matt, what's wrong with making people work in order to receive uh, social services, especially in an era of crises like not only the pandemic, but climate change as well? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are a number of problems with this concept of work requirements. And, and thankfully, the Republican ambitions uh, to apply work requirements to Medicaid and and all sorts of things uh, were dramatically scaled back in the final deal that passed Congress um, regarding the debt ceiling. Um, but I think, you know, Republicans in, in part tried to frame this as something that would be good for the economy because we would be encouraging people to work. Um, and I think, you know, there's really very little evidence that uh, Medicaid or any kind of social benefits uh, like that are keeping large numbers of people from working who otherwise would be. Um, so I think the, the entire thing is kind of based on a, on a mistaken assumption. But uh, I mean, I also think it's, it's um, economically illogical to, to try to implement something like this, because if you're concerned about having a, having a strong workforce and having um, as many people working as possible, wouldn't you want people to be as healthy as possible? So, you know, why would you make it harder for people to uh, access the healthcare that they need in order to stay healthy enough to remain in the workforce? Uh, so I think the the whole idea there just um, doesn't really make a lot of sense. And I think is, is not really what the policy is about. I think the policy is more about just trying to, trying to demonstrate to, to the Republican base or to voters who might be sympathetic with this idea that we're we're keeping healthcare, we're keeping benefits away from people that don't deserve them. But you know that idea itself is is um, I think morally very problematic. Why why should we not say that everyone deserves healthcare regardless of their of their station in life? And why is it something that you should have to deserve? Um, so it's it's just another manifestation of this tendency in American politics to think that um, we can't really have universal benefits. We have to always be conditioning benefits on some sort of notion of deservedness. Need-based always, always a needs-based system instead of a universal system. You write that everyone deserves to have health insurance regardless of their station in life, and people who cannot pay for medical care will be less productive workers too, but it takes real chutzpah to attack your opponents for trying to kick millions of people off Medicaid when your own policies are about to result in the very same outcome. Here's what Republican leadership posted on March 10th at House.gov, the website for the House of Representatives. Quote, President Biden's budget puts patients and cures last while expanding Washington command and control over America's health care economy. This budget ignores looming cuts to Medicare, doubles down on Democrats' uh, harmful cures limiting plans, expands government-controlled health care, imposes hundreds of billions in new taxes on small businesses, 
and relies on budget gimmicks to fake Medicare solvency. In this situation, it sounds like the House Republicans are very much for Medicare, very large supporters for Medicare, and very large supporters for helping people cut costs when it comes to health care. Is that an accurate depiction of the budget uh, Biden budget plan when it comes to health care? And does the Republican plan do any better at providing health care to those in the United States who cannot afford high costs? No, I, I think I think it's very cynical of Republicans to position themselves as defenders of Medicare. And, and I think you you're right to point to the fact that um, the fact that a large portion of their base are Medicare recipients. And so that's why they like to portray themselves as defenders of, of Medicare or Social Security. Um, but I think, you know, in a in a strange way, it, it sort of makes me hopeful about the future because it suggests that universal programs are extremely popular. And uh, there's this saying that, you know, programs for the poor are poor programs because when you have these programs that try to be more targeted, uh, they end up being very politically unpopular because uh, we get into all of these debates about where exactly to draw the line as far as income or who deserves them and who doesn't. And when you have universal programs like Social Security and Medicare, they're, they're very politically durable. They're very popular because everyone benefits from them and they're perceived as, as something that's open to everyone. So I think if we got to the point where we were able to significantly expand eligibility for Medicare, um, ideally to the whole population, but but maybe as a first step, you know, lowering the age of eligibility, I think at some point you might start to see conservative politicians say, well, that's something I always supported. You know, it's it's uh, I think it'll become very hard to undo uh, if we can ever get to the point of implementing it. So that's the, the way that Republicans talk about Medicare and Social Security, uh, you know, not that they're not still trying to cut them, but I think they they're they run into a lot more resistance when they try to talk about that. Um, than when they try to go after Medicaid or or SNAP or anything like that. So to you, uh, yeah. to you, what explains then this bipartisan support for cutting funding of government health insurance when polls have shown since 2015 that the majority of Americans support the government insuring health care for all citizens? The most recent Gallup poll from last December had 57% for government health care and only 40% against. That's a 17-point gap. In fact, since the year 2000, numbers supporting universal health care have gone from 51 to as high as 69% every year, except during Obamacare negotiations and signing it into law when the country was divided. It was basically 50-50 even during that point in time. For the, if for the past quarter century, the majority of Americans have expressed their support for universal government insurance, government health care, except during a short period of politically contentious and charged partisan debate that still never led to the majority of Americans opposing universal health care. If polls show Americans want the government to provide health care, in your opinion, why are both parties working to undermine and underfund such a responsibility? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I, I think there's maybe two things that I would point to. One is you know, the resistance of the private health insurance industry and, uh, you know, which is which has a very significant interest in making sure that there's not further expansion of public health insurance and, and in fact, is always interested in, in making sure that existing public programs are 
at least partially privatized. So, you know, when I say when I said earlier that uh, Medicare and Social Security are are you know very politically popular, they're not completely untouchable because there are always these efforts to privatize various aspects of Medicare, get more people onto Medicare Advantage, which are you know essentially private plans that are kind of subsidized through Medicare. Um, and so, you know, that's a very politically powerful industry that's that has a stake in the status quo and and in ensuring that there are no major changes to that status quo. And, you know, you can see the Affordable Care Act that was passed under Obama as kind of a an effort to expand health coverage without really fundamentally changing the privatized nature of the system, because, uh, you know, that would have provoked a level of resistance that probably would have ended the entire effort. So I think that's that's a big part of it. And the second thing I would point to is is the fact that, you know, in the abstract, I think a lot of people do support public health insurance and moving to something like Medicare for all. But a lot of people are very, you know, understandably reluctant to give up the health insurance they have now if they have health insurance, even if it's not great coverage because, you know, they're worried about what they might end up with instead. And so when you when you get into the the details of crafting a particular alternative, people start to worry about, you know, what is this going to look like for me? And, you know, it's maybe the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. And, and I'd rather just stick with my current coverage. So I think we've seen this throughout different health reform efforts along the way that once you get into the details, that's when support kind of starts to drop off because people have this, you know, aversion to letting go of what they have not always unjustifiably so. So do you think that this, well, whether it's underfunding of Medicare or even this Medicare Advantage scam that is being proved to not give you the coverage that you thought you were going to get? A lot of people are going to the hospital and saying, I have Medicare Advantage, and they're being told, I'm sorry, we don't accept Medicare Advantage, or I'm sorry, Medicare Advantage does not cover what you think it covers. Do you think all of this is intentional to undermine the efficiency, the effectability, or, you know, the ability for uh, Medicare to provide health insurance. Is this an intentional program and project to undermine what little public health insurance we do have in the United States? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's hard to say that it's not. You know, going back to my point from earlier about the, the push to shrink the Medicaid rolls again and, and undo this state of emergency that was allowing people to stay on Medicaid indefinitely. I think um, there, there is, you know, many politicians recognize the dynamic that I was talking about earlier, that, that these benefits are popular. And so you need to undo them before they become too entrenched, because once they become too entrenched, then they build up a really strong constituency and it becomes harder to undo them. And, and so I think that um, something like Something like Medicare Advantage is is another example of that. We want to um, we being the you know elected officials that are concerned about the power of the of the private health insurance industry. You know, we we want to make sure that people are not getting accustomed to uh, to public insurance because uh, if they get accustomed to that, it kind of increases their expectations as to as to what else might be possible. 
We are speaking with economist Matt Mazuski, who wrote the Commonwealth Magazine article, The Pandemic Isn't Over, Why Are Both Parties Pretending That COVID Is Behind Us? Find out more about Matt at his website, Matt Mazuski, M-A-Z-E-W-S-K-I.com. Follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Mazuski. So, Matt, in your opinion, how much is the Biden administration policy toward the pandemic? How much does it differ from the uh, Trump administration policy? I realize they happened at different points during the pandemic so far, so it might be an unfair question. But is the Biden policy consistent or inconsistent with that of at least the trajectory of the Trump policy toward the pandemic when the Trump uh, administration left office? Yeah, no, I, I think that's also a good question. And and it's really the whole trajectory of the Biden administration's approach to the pandemic has been really disappointing and, and alarming because, uh, you know, Biden campaigned in large part on doing a better job of, of controlling COVID than, than Trump. And uh, he made a statement at one point while he was uh, running for president about how I'll, I'll never wave the white flag of surrender to this virus. And he made other comments about how, you know, anyone who, who's been president and presided over 100 or 200,000 deaths, there's no, there's no way that person should remain in office. And since Biden has taken office, you know, we've seen at least 700,000 deaths because of COVID. Um, and, you know, Trump talked about how uh, I mean, he was rightly mocked early on in 2020 for saying, well, you know, if we weren't testing, uh, then we would have no cases. And that policy is effectively what the policy is now. I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier about, you know, the quality of the data has been degraded a great deal. Um, there's really no systematic large scale testing anymore. Um, the viral surveillance has been weakened. Uh, to a large extent. And, and so we really don't have much information about exactly what's going on. So in that sense, um, you know, Biden did some good things early on as far as overseeing vaccine rollout and, and things like that. But um, as it is now, it's kind of the same, the same approach of, of, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. And um, we just don't want to think about this problem anymore. We don't want to talk about it. And if we don't have the data showing that it's a problem, then we don't have to talk about it. You write that a growing body of research demonstrates how infection can increase the risk of developing all manner of chronic health problems, including cardiovascular disease, autoimmune conditions, or neurological dis uh, disorders. And, you know, there's the concern, as you point out in your article, over those who are going to have COVID over the long haul. So as cases of these diseases increase due to COVID, there's going to be more and more medical resources that will be needed. Uh, there's going to be more and more suffering due to the long COVID effect. Are we facing a future of an increasingly stressed healthcare system that is increasingly being underfunded by the government? How likely is it that we are heading for an avoidable public health care crisis that both parties are doing seemingly nothing to avoid and everything to cause. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, unfortunately, that is the trajectory that we're on because, uh, you know, it seems like there was a lot of focus. It was, it was easier to focus um, public attention on the problem when um, it, was, it was seen as more of an acute crisis. Um, and one, one area in which it seems like we have made progress is in 
bringing down the death rate from COVID at least, the death rate and the hospitalization rate at least in the acute phase. Um, so, you know, what it seems like vaccines have been very effective at is um, keeping people from being hospitalized or dying from this sort of acute pneumonia condition right after contracting COVID. Um, but as, as you mentioned, you know, there is all this growing evidence about the medium to long-term risks of infection. And that's harder for people to see. It's not, it's not as visible. People are not like maybe queuing over in the streets. Uh, and so it's, it's harder to see that for the growing crisis that it is. Um, but I think you're right that it's, it's as these, as we continue to allow this problem to fester without really getting serious about mitigating it, we're going to see likely increased rates of all kinds of chronic conditions. We're already seeing a significant drop in life expectancy. Uh, and, and those things are going to place a lot of strain on the healthcare system. And another reason why I think there's going to be a lot of strain on the healthcare system is also because of the effect that ongoing transmission is going to have on the healthcare workforce. Uh, so there was some research that just came out recently about uh, elevated rates of long COVID or, or persistent COVID symptoms among healthcare workers. And the, the fact that we now are in a situation where hospitals, as a result of the end of the public health emergency, are no longer required to report any data related to transmission or hospital onset of COVID, uh, you know, that's a problem not just for the patients, but it's a problem for the healthcare workforce because it means that we're more likely to see labor shortages during during future spikes of the virus or um, you know increased burnout um, workers that just aren't able to perform their jobs because of one um, you know infection associated disability or another and so those are all things that I think are great cause for concern that we're just kind of ignoring and hoping that we don't get to that point. You also point out that the end of the emergency declarations will cement America's capitulation to COVID in a variety of ways. For one, vaccines, antiviral treatments, and high-quality PCR tests will no longer be paid for by the government and provided free to all Americans. So will the virus, will COVID increasingly become a class-based disease. That is, people who can afford vaccines, treatments, and tests will fare far better than those who do not have access to resources. Throwing the cuts to Medicaid, how vulnerable are both parties and the Biden administration in making the poor to uh, claiming the, uh, you know, how, how vulnerable have they made the poor uh, by claiming to COVID, by claiming the national emergency is over? Yeah, I, I think you're right that they're, Throughout the whole pandemic, there's been um, there's been a substantial class disparity and and racial disparities in terms of the the burden of this disease, and I think that it's likely to intensify going forward, or those those gaps are likely to widen going forward for the reasons that you've that you've stated. Um, and you know, we we see this with a lot of social problems that if the if those who are better off think that they can insulate themselves from the problem and, and uh, foist it on those who are uh, less well off, then, then that's what they do. Um, and I think another area where uh, we, can, we can see this too is in terms of occupational hazards and risk of being exposed to COVID on the job. Um, so there was research earlier in the pandemic showing that um, some of the occupations that had the highest 
um, rates of illness and mortality as a result of of COVID were things like uh, chefs and cooks and fast food workers. Uh, and so, you know, jobs that you can't do from home and jobs where you're exposed to um, large numbers of people on a regular basis. And I think that that points to the fact that, going back to something I said earlier, that we really need strong standards uh, for workplace health and safety that are responsive to the reality of airborne transmission. And the good news is that if we could ever get to that point, the benefits would would extend to not just COVID, but to all kinds of, of uh, airborne viruses, you know, colds, flus, and also to um, other kinds of environmental pollutants, things like wildfire smoke, which we just saw, um, you know, on the East Coast, we were just dealing with last week. So um, there really are so many uh, related or overlapping reasons why this is the direction that we need to be headed in um, and why this would also help to reduce these kind of uh, class disparities. And I think there was a second part to your question about uh, the Biden administration. That's okay. I just wanted to, uh, we, we're uh, limited on time. And so you mentioned, okay, sure. you also mentioned an organization that uh, the uh, People CDC, uh, that includes a past guest on our show, epidemiologist Rob Wallace. Uh, thanks <laughs> to Rob for sharing Matt's article, by the way. Uh, that last Monday, the People CDC, in their weekly weather report, which I find fascinating, on the state of the COVID virus, reports since the end of the public health emergency and the corresponding lack of data tracking and reporting by the CDC, we are in the dark about how much COVID transmission is happening around us. In some areas, wastewater data can be used to give a sense of community transmission, but it is not available everywhere, more specifically in rural or remote communities where they rely on septic tanks. So in rural or remote communities, they will be more likely and susceptible to get COVID. But other more local wastewater monitoring systems show reason for concern. For example, all New York City sites have high levels of SARS-CoV-2 in their wastewater. Matt, what does it mean for public health now that the Biden administration and both both parties have, in a bipartisan coalition, left us in the dark on whether COVID is spiking or not, not giving us the information to take the necessary uh, precautions to protect us from the virus? What does that mean for public health right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're you're getting at the fact that the data we have has become a lot murkier and, and more sparse. And so we have to try to look at some of these alternative sources like wastewater data to try to, to get the same um, picture of what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I've, I've heard uh, people like Ashish Jha and members of the Biden administration have kind of touted this wastewater monitoring as, as a great scientific innovation and you know this is something that's really going to give us a lot of information going forward and um something that can help us with the next pandemic as i was talking about before um but you know the wastewater data is just one one piece of the data that we should be collecting i mean we should be there should still be large-scale surveillance testing that allows us to see where the virus is what variants of the virus are spreading um so that we can respond to to that threat with the best possible information um, but I think it's there's a deliberate element to it to to scaling back the data collection 
like I, I said before, because if you if you don't have the data and you don't see that there's a problem, then you don't have to do anything about the problem. So you know, part of part of any movement for uh, renewal or reinvigoration of public health has to be uh, a focus on how do we collect better data, um, how do we get the best possible picture of what's happening, and and only on that basis can we really make you know, scientific, well-informed judgments about how to respond to the situation. So uh, you write that perhaps elected officials fear that anything involving the word COVID is politically toxic now that the public is thought to have moved on from the issue. But another part of the explanation might be that many of the unprecedented actions taken by the government in response to the onset of the crisis, from imposing moratoria on evictions and student loan payments to expanding unemployment benefits, nutrition assistance, and access to Medicaid, visibly demonstrated how the state, when it feels like it, can do far more than it usually does to provide for the needs of ordinary people. So, Matt, did neoliberalism fail in the face of crisis and both neoliberal parties are pushing to reimplement and double down on a system that will not work and will not provide for the public during crisis during any crisis like pandemics and climate change is there a bipartisan consensus right now to insist that market-based solutions do work when they completely failed us in the pandemic yeah, I, I, I think so. I think you see that with uh, things like the push to to commercialize vaccines and treatments. Um, you know, there's just a, a sense that uh, on the part of, of political officials that we have to get back to the ordinary way of doing things and and acknowledging that the that there is still a crisis, that the problem is ongoing would mean having to continue those those solutions because the alternatives are so manifestly inadequate to the to the scale of the problem, um, and you know I, I appreciate the fact that you bring up climate change because I think this is a tactic that's used in in other contexts as well. Climate change being one of them, uh, that you know we we can't really um, uh, talk too much about what it would mean to solve this problem because that gets into uh, the need to overhaul the entire energy system and and confront you know fossil fuel interests and and things like that and so even even many politicians that will will talk about climate change will, will still kind of keep their uh, solutions at the level of changes in individual behavior things like tax credits for electric vehicles or you know doing more recycling or putting solar panels on your house and I mean solar panels are great and electric vehicles are great but uh, those those types of of responses are not really getting at the core root of the issue, which is, uh, you know, the need to restructure the entire energy system uh, to move away from fossil fuel. And that's not something that individuals can do on their own or should be expected to bear the responsibility for. And so it's the same thing with COVID. If we can portray this as a problem that, you know, it's up to you to take care of your own health. Um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services just the other day was saying, you know, if you're dying of COVID at this point, uh, it's basically your own fault. You didn't you didn't take all the precautions that are available to you, and um, you know that that kind of individualized framing is uh, is necessary if you want to avoid talking about the the more systemic solutions. 
One last question for you, Matt. We've been speaking with economist Matt Mazuski, who wrote the Commonwealth Magazine article, The Pandemic Isn't Over, Why Are Both Parties Pretending That COVID Is Behind Us? You can fo- find out more about Matt at mattmazuski.com and follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Mazuski. That's M-A-Z-E-W-S-K-I. So as we have been discussing throughout our conversation today, uh, there seems to be bipartisan support, not only for cutting costs to health care, but also bipartisan support for neoliberalism. Our final question, as we do this for all of our guests, Matt, I promise our final question is called the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. Can we vote for universal health care in the United States? Can we vote against neoliberalism in the United States? Or are the two parties that control the country refusing to do what polls show the public, the American public wants, and that is to have universal health care? What does it say to you about democracy in the U.S.? When two parties can control the country and not allow the public to have a choice on matters that are as important as health care or implementing a system like neoliberalism? Well, I think it's a question that nobody really knows the answer to, but something I think history should give us some cause for hope because something like Medicare or or Medicaid uh, seemed impossible before they were enacted and and we eventually managed to enact them. So I think that uh, you know it's it's tempting to give up and say things can never change and there's no real choice. This is just going to go on forever. Um, and it may be the case now that there's no there's no easy way to find the person on the ballot who's going to be able to solve everything. Um, but that's why I think the solution is is organizing and and building a mass support for these things and and building movements that are capable of of changing the incentives that politicians face so that there's some counterbalance to the power of the private insurance industry or the pharmaceutical industry or all of these other interests that are distorting policies away from the common good. And that's not a that's not a short run solution, but it's something that, you know, we can have confidence, as I said, from history that things can change when people come together and demand that they change. Matt, thank you so much for being on our show today. Again, economist Matt Mazuski wrote the uh, uh, Commonwealth Magazine article, The Pandemic Isn't Over. Why are both parties pretending that COVID is behind us? You can find the article at Commonwealth Magazine, W-E-A-L Magazine.org, or follow them on Twitter at Commonwealth Mag. Thank you so much for being on our show and look for us to be annoying you in the future to have you back on. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to be here. And I, I just have to nitpick and, and correct your pronunciation of Commonweal Magazine. It's Commonweal Magazine. Commonweal, really? Yes. Okay. Yes. No idea. So I just I was just thought it was Commonwealth without the TH. All right, no, Commonweal. Well, my, my, my editors would uh, would have been on me if I didn't uh, correct you there. So uh, so thank you so much for having me on. And, your your uh, editors sound like really uh, sound very authoritarian. And I hope that you are able <laughs> not, to overthrow not, them in the near future. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> all right. Take care, Matt. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. This is not the media. This is hell. Common wheel. I thought that was a car magazine. And you know this is not the media because they are doing everything they can to convince us the pandemic is over. Despite it still being one of the leading causes of deaths in the United States, the media just wants to pretend 
It's all behind us. If the talk we just had with Matt is a reminder that you cannot and will not hear a discussion like that anywhere else, show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing nearly 27 years of content that you could not and cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you cannot hear anywhere else, and providing that content to you absolutely free, including nearly 10 years of shows that are now available right now at thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that and that it's always been free by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. Again, remember, we are completely listener-supported. We do not make enough profit to be a not-for-profit. We refuse to accept any foundation money, and we refuse to accept any commercial or advertiser money in order for us to at least have the perception that we have absolutely no conflict of interest. We do everything we can to make it so we don't have a conflict of interest, and we can only do that with your support. On our most recent Thursday, June 8th Patreon podcast, I got me a new medical condition and a 10-year-old talk with one of last week's guests. So I started by talking about conversations with past guests and what I've learned from them about depression, loneliness, obsessive-compulsive disorder, attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as last week's talk about myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as MCECFS. The many diseases, disorders, and syndromes we've talked about, however, seem to me to have one single origin. When we spoke with American Breakdown author Jennifer London about CFS, she mentioned how such disorders should be approached not as only biological or only psychological or only social, but biopsychosocial, that we are affected by our entire environment, our complete selves, and uh, it leads to consider such syndrome as a more in a, f- a more holistic fashion when we consider them on a as a biopsychosocial disorder. And I think I figured out what the real biopsychosocial disorder from which we all suffer is. But you can only hear that if you tune into last week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on that Patreon podcast, we played an interview from 10 years earlier with another of last week's guests, Nick Terse, who was on last week to talk about his uh, new investigation at The Intercept, Kissinger's Killing Fields. Nick was on back in 2013 to talk about an article he had just posted at tomdispatch.com. That article was titled, So Many People Died, The American System of Suffering from 1965 to 2014. At the time, Nick's book, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam, had just been released. So you should not only check out the interview that we did with Nick from last year, but you should check out our interview that we did with him in 2013 that is available on Patreon. And you should definitely uh, see his, uh, read his book, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam, which is outstanding. But the only way you can find out what I'm suffering from, that you're probably suffering from, that we are all likely suffering from, and to hear an interview by an award-winning journalist on the U.S. system of suffering, 
is by showing your appreciation for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday morning at 10 Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word that gives you a $5 discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. Check out all the perks for Patreon patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. Cat, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners on Patreon are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, what disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? On Patreon, we've got Jamie K. says, Munchausen syndrome, just because I like saying it. Also, it'd be great if Chuck's symptoms were not real. That's true, and I do like Munchausen Syndrome. That does sound like a lot of fun. That sounds nice. Uh, Fergus Z says, Oppositional Defiant Disorder. Odd. Odd. O-D-D. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Uh, Essential says, Sobriety. <laughs> that is the disease. Chance tells us, uh, Bilge Rot. <laughs> really? <laughs> Am I a boat? I guess so. <laughs> what the hell? Uh, <laughs> That's gross. Uh, Nate the Great says Stockholm Syndrome after one of the producers takes over. <laughs> Jessica B says the wellness industrial complex. <laughs> All right. Jeff Dorchin answers jock barnacles. I'm no. only saying it because my predictions never come true. Yeah. <laughs> so consider yourself permanently immune to jock barnacles. So You're jock one. barnacles and bilge rot? What is with all this nautical like stuff? Nautical with themed. I, I don't know. I, I, you wouldn't think that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't I, don't, can, I don't know. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a boat. <laughs> not a boat. Um, old Grouch says early onset genius syndrome. There is no treatment. It is closely related to the Cassandra curse. His predictions will be utterly true and no one will believe him. <laughs> all right. Okay. I like that. Justin M. This is kind of a long one. Uh, says, in a freak accident, Chuck will fall down a manhole and discover an amulet granting him the power to predict the outcome of all cockfights. This will make him a disgustingly wealthy, blind, bitter, gap-toothed radio show host, although he will soon leave radio to pursue his dream of building a tracksuit empire. Unfortunately, after a little more than a decade of decadence, Chuck will develop a, a severe case of affluenza, affluenza like uh, affluence and will be trampled to death by penguins while trying to stake his claim to beachfront property in antarctica (laughs) (laughs) wow what an imagination wow justin m M., thank you very much i'm glad you put that much thought into it any more on patreon um yeah we've got a couple more you want me to go ahead and read them yeah yeah let's finish them up and then we'll move on sure keith t says ennui Warwick M uh, says bubonic plague, asiatic cholera, syphilis, tuberculosis, smallpox, AIDS, influenza, SARS, bird flu, swine flu, SARS, COVID, and of course cancer all at the same time, crying face emoji. Wow. Yikes. (laughs) So is that how we're ending on Patreon? (laughs) Um, (laughs) We've got one, two, three. We have about six more. Oh, well, so let's save those for tomorrow. We can save those. Okay. Wow. 
Wow. Uh, yeah, that was depressing. I should have figured that question would be depressing. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. And now, the return of Dr. Sebastian Vopper, a historian himself, and the past inside the present. When Sebastian gives us some history from our past that will help us make better sense of our present. And this week, Seb returns to give you this week's past inside the present live from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Without further ado, it's time for the past inside the present. The past inside the present. It's still Pride Month, so once again, happy Pride to all of you fabulous creatures out there who celebrate. We're here in hell, um... We're still a little behind the times, so we're basically on the Julian calendar. So while the rest of the world is out there doing pride, we're still stuck in Asian and Pacific Islander month. And because too few people know about the history of the 50th state, I'm doing another week talking about the history of Hawaii. Last week we covered how the Polynesians settled the Hawaiian Islands at some point in the more distant past. We don't know exactly when. Hawaiian society had no written language, so all we have to go by are oral histories. And as is usually the case with oral histories, us Westerners with our high and mighty written culture often tend to write those off as laughably savage and behind, lesser, uh, because, well... People who mainly keep their record through oral histories are a couple of shades darker than we are. But as I said last week, in the mid to late 19th century, researchers conducted interviews with Native Hawaiians and found that according to Native Hawaiian oral tradition, the islands had been settled for about 28 generations, and a century later, radiocarbon dating of archaeological sites basically confirmed that. Which all reminds me of the story where anthropologists in recent years conducted extensive studies of indigenous Australian cultures and found that in their oral histories they accurately represented the coastline of Australia going back to the last ice age. Something we needed to invent hard science for to know. These guys, they just know it. They just, you know, it's just orally traded on through the centuries. So we left off after Hawaii was discovered by James Cook in uh, 1778, and discovered here, again, in very, very big scare quotes, uh, which, I need to stress again, is really hella late in the game. And then, after more Europeans came to the islands, a young warrior prince from the island of Hawaii by the name of Kamehameha rose up, uh, took western guns and cannons, and unified the islands as the Kingdom of Hawaii, in 1795. Since the Hawaiians did not have writing, it is unclear when exactly Kamehameha was born. 
made more difficult too uh, by that he was born into a period of warfare on the island of Hawaii because uh, between various ruling clans. As the prince of a ruling clan, Kamehameha was raised at the court of one of his uncles, the Ali'i Nuhi, Ali'i Nui, high ruler of the island of Hawaii, and given control over part of the island, as well as being proclaimed guardian of Kuka'ilimoku, the god of war. A Hawaiian kahuna, a high priestess, foretold a prophecy about Kamehameha that if he was able to move the Naha stone, he would be the only one, uh, the one to unify the islands. The Naha stone is a volcanic monolith that was traditionally a part of rulership rituals of the rulers of Hawaiian royal bloodlines. And only those with Naha blood could move it, legend said, and only those among the Naha who put possessed the mana necessary to rule the land could actually, you know, do the deed. And, well, our boy Kamehameha showed the Naha stone who was boss by overturning it in front of a large crowd of people. Thus the legend was born. Today, the Naha stone is situated in front of the Hilo Public Library on the island of Hawaii. Um, <laughs> it's uh, f for, for how important that, that stone is to Hawaiian history. Uh, it's kind of kind of a weird, nonchalant way to display it, but I don't know. It's just one of these weird things. Uh, soon after, Kamehameha defeated the only other contender for ruler of the island of Hawaii in the Battle of uh, Moku'ohai. Um, and then after this, British and American traders took note of this rising political ruler. Aided by the wits of one of his many wives, Queen Ka'ahumanu, and uh, firearms uh, that both the Americans and British uh, sold to him, Kamehameha went forth and conquered land after land, tribe after tribe, until the islands were finally united in 1795. During his reign, the islands unified the legal system and took steps to make sure that the islands would remain united after his death. With his many wives, some records give the number as 21, he founded the house of Kamehameha. He used the goods given to him as taxes uh, to further trade with Americans and British. He commissioned the first European-style structure to be built as his seat of governance, the so-called Brick Palace at uh, Lahaina on Maui. The palace, a modest house by European standards, was built by two former Australian convicts, because the world has always been more connected than we give it credit for. Kamehameha the Great died in 1819, and he was succeeded by his favorite son, Liholiho, who took up the name Kamehameha II. Uh, his royal advisors, his own wife and former queen, Kaahumanu, then convin uh, convinced Kamehameha II to do away with the kapu system uh, and with most of Hawaiian religion. The king did so by defying the kapu tradition when he dined together with, with his wife, which was forbidden by religious law that said men and women could not eat together. The commoners were then instructed to destroy both religious idols and rock temples. And a year after, the first Christian missionaries arrived on the island. So this is kind of like an important thing to notice, that, that the um, Hawaiian rulers basically themselves decided we're going to do away with our traditional religion, independent of the presence of any Christian colonizers or Christian missionaries. 
and then, however, the Christianization of the kingdom took some time. In between, there was little in terms of official religion on the island. One positive effect of the missionaries was that they worked to develop a writing system for the Hawaiian language because they sought to translate the Bible into Hawaiian. In that, at least, the Congregationalist missionaries were better than the Catholic ones who didn't really care that much about whether or not the subjugated people really understood the word of God. The missionaries created an easy-to-understand writing system, and the chiefs of the island kingdom, who were the first uh, to convert to Christianity, made sure their subjects were able to read and write in this new writing system. The missionaries also set up a network of schools to teach Hawaiian children. And this network was so well received that when the missionaries handed over control of the schools to the Hawaiian government in 1840, uh, the legislature mandated education of every child under the age of 14. Um, and that was 12 years, actually, before the same thing happened in the United States. As an effect, the literacy rates in the Hawaiian kingdom soon rivaled that of most other places around the world. In 1824, Kamehameha II died and was succeeded as king by his younger brother, Kaui Kaoli, who uh, took up the name, you'll never guess this, Kamehameha III. And uh, that's why basically every other street in Hawaii is Kamehameha Road, Kamehameha Boulevard, or Kamehameha Highway. Kamehameha III codified many new laws, most importantly the Mahele Law of Land Distribution, in response to threats of colonization by Western powers. In 1840, Kamehameha III's legislature enacted the first constitution of Hawaii in, in, in an effort to guarantee that Native Hawaiians would not lose the ownership of their lands. The Mahele system effectively ended the feudal system of land stewardship that had governed the islands before. The Mahele law al allocated one-third of the lands uh, of the island's lands to the king as crown lands, the second third was given to the Ali'i and the Konohiki, the chiefs and former stewards, and the final third was given to the commoners. Claims for land needed to be filed within two years, but most Hawaiians never filed formal claims for their lands, because land ownership as such was a new concept to them, and most people did not understand that they could get locked out of lands they had traditionally cultivated. While the Mahele system was supposed to protect the lands from being lost to foreigners, the exact opposite happened. The Hawaiian government ended up selling most of the land to a group of sugarcane processors, uh, processing companies and corporations known as the Big Five. The reasoning was that if foreigners could claim Hawaiian lands, they would bring prosperity to the islands. And this became especially salient when Western Hawaiian Chief Justice William Little Lee wrote the Alien Land Ownership Act, which allowed foreigners to hold titles on Hawaiian lands. Lee was an American lawyer who had been brought on by Kamehameha III as legal counsel. Given the constant struggle the Hawaiian kingdom had with colonial powers trying to colonize them, the constant land disputes with the, with the British and with the French, uh, who tried to sack Honolulu in 1849 in an abortive attempt to invade and take over, and American uh, uh, interests, the Hawaiian kingdom needed people experienced in Western-style legislature. The, the Hawaiian rulers noticed that. And this was the mechanism by which many Westerners, especially Americans then, rose to positions of political power within the Hawaiian kingdom. 
what the foreigners brought, however, was, as is usually the case in these situations, disease, disenfranchisement, and suppression. The native Hawaiian population plummeted between 60 and 90%, depending on what estimate one uses for how many Hawaiians there were by the time Captain Cook came around. Hawaiians died from imported European diseases for the most part. And we're again running out of time. Tune in next week for the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and to learn about how Hawaiian music and Hawaiian shirts became all the rage in the United States. Uh, I'll get to some queer history eventually, I swear. You are here, and this is hell. Uh, Kat, who are this week's upcoming guests here on This Is Hell? Um, upcoming, we have returning to This Is Hell, critic and journalist Kate Wagner, who will be on to discuss her new Baffler Magazine article, Bad Manners, the McMansion as Harbinger of the American Apocalypse. Kate is the creator and writer of the satirical architecture blog, McMansion Hell. That's a great article. Kate really knocked it out of the park again. Uh, Her writing on architecture is absolutely fantastic. And the subtitle of that, The Mansion as Harbinger of the American Apocalypse, is absolutely right. Uh, So we'll be talking to her about that tomorrow. And then who's on Wednesday's show? On Wednesday, we have historian Joe Goldie. I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Um, We'll talk to us about her Boston Review article, the Earth for Man, redistributing land, was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. Joe is professor of history at Southern Methodist University. Her most recent book is called The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. So she sends me an email saying, hey, I just want you to know that we have a friend in common. Uh, do you know somebody by the name of Chaim? I don't want to give out his last name. Do you know somebody by the name of Chaim? And because uh, I met him, I think she told me that she met him in Nepal. So somehow we have a friend in common. I think she said she met in Nepal. Go figure. Thanks to Kat Jarvin for producing, and thanks to uh, Will for training up all of our new producers. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. How would you, dear listener, like to be a producer here on This Is Hell? If you can make it to our studio at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood and be here from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. at least one day, Monday through Wednesday each week, and believe in what we do on the show, you too can be part of our crew. The duties of a producer include confirming guests in the days leading up to the show and helping them with logistics to put them on air. You'll also do a guest sound check 15 minutes before airtime, run the board during the live stream and recording. Following the show, producers edit whatever is necessary, post the show on all of our social media platforms, back up the show on our external hard drive, and finally prepare the show for distribution to one of our five media outlets. The whole process should take about three and a half hours. We do reward producers for their services, which we will discuss if you are interested in the position. You will also get a number of perks, including access to a professional studio for you to engage in your own projects, which we will happily promote. Do you already do a podcast, but want to do it somewhere other than your acoustically challenged basement, bedroom, or dining table? Then join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in joining This Is Hell, email us at chuck at thisishell.com and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you like the show so much that you actually want to contribute to the work of doing the show. Finally, join us for our This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party, as well as the opening of this year's edition of This Is Art, the art show that accompanies the party every year. 
Uh, it's all happening up here in Second Story Studios, or at least that this is how, uh, this is an art show is just outside our own studio do- doors. But the entire thing is happening here at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood on Saturday, July 22nd. And it all starts around 3 o'clock. There's art, there's music, there's food, there's a raffle. And we have been getting fantastic raffle prizes donated to the show. If you are an artist or know one or love the work of an artist that you think will be a perfect match for the This Is Art show that opens at the party, or if you're a musician or know a musician or appreciate a musician's music, that you think will be a perfect fit for the anniversary party, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Share your suggested artist or musician in a sample of their art or music, and who knows, maybe your recommended artist or musician will be featured at the party. Keep in mind, we take no commission at all for any art sold at the show, and we have been told we pay musicians far too much. Again, if you have what you think would make a great raffle prize or would like to suggest an artist or musical act to be part of the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, email us your ideas to chuck at thisishell.com. That's the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show happening Saturday, July 22nd at 3 in the afternoon, beginning at 3 in the afternoon, at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.